Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Today on Stanford Pathfinders, a professor who says we need to be practicing conservative vigilance when it comes to the Chinese government. Can we at least start by ensuring that scientists and engineers working for the People's Liberation Army of China are not going to be, you know, in labs with our most sensitive technological secrets at stake? The co-author of a new report that urges our government and universities to be more protective of intellectual property. Don't overreact. Be very empirical, very analytical, very methodical, and then look at your institutions and rules and just ask in a very concrete way, what might you need to change? This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Professor Larry Diamond. Now here's your host, Howard Wolf. Stanford University has a rich history in the many fields related to geopolitics, including political science, international relations, public policy, economics, history, and law. These disciplinary strengths and the deep embrace of interdisciplinary research have helped the university gain an excellent reputation for both sound scholarship and policy recommendations in this realm. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is a truly amazing Stanford citizen. Larry Diamond proudly holds three degrees from Stanford, including a bachelor's, master's, and PhD. After teaching for five years at Vanderbilt University, Larry returned to Stanford where he's currently a senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, and a professor by courtesy of political science and sociology. He is a distinguished award-winning professor at Stanford, having received awards for citizenship, teaching, and contributions to undergraduate education. Dr. Diamond is also a prodigious researcher, having penned numerous papers and books. His most recent effort, and the focus of today's show, is a report entitled Chinese Influence and American Interests, Promoting Constructive Vigilance, published by the Hoover Institution. This report was produced by the Working Group on Chinese Influence Activities in the United States, a group of more than 30 scholars co-chaired by Dr. Diamond and Orville Schell, the director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. The group's conclusion that China is attempting on a wide-scale basis to manipulate the United States through state and local governments, universities, think tanks, media, corporations, and the Chinese-American community is both timely and thought-provoking. In many ways, a warning. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Howard. It's an honor to be on your show. So let me start with the most obvious question. Why should we as Americans be concerned about China? What are the two or three most important findings of your new report that should give us this concern? Well, 
the first and most important reason why we should be worried about China is one that it didn't take our report to make clear to the world, which is that this is not only a rapidly emerging superpower. We see evidence of that uh, almost every day, uh, including their most recent moon venture, but that it's an authoritarian emerging superpower with kind of totalitarian features in the way they're using technology to monitor their own population and seeding technology to monitor and uh, really uh, penetrate societies around the world. So this leads, uh, Howard, to some of the, the findings of our report, and maybe it's a bit hard to uh, prioritize these, but I think we would all regard our safety and security as the single uh, highest priority for a country, of course. And here you have a rising, deeply authoritarian and increasingly nationalistic superpower that has been in the business for the last uh, 25 years or so of misappropriating uh, high technology, cutting-edge technology in a wide range of fields, everything from drones to robotics to artificial intelligence and gene editing. Uh, That's quite an accusation. Well, it's a well-documented one, not only by our report, by, but by the report that was released last year by the Defense Innovation Unit on China's technology uh, transfer strategy. And the experts worry that uh, if this continues unabated, it could enable China to surge forward to have de facto military superiority over the United States. If not globally, then certainly in the Pacific arena, what would this mean for open access to uh, the trading relationships in the world? What would it mean for the security of Taiwan? What would it mean for the credibility of our commitments? And what would it mean on the economic plane for our ability to compete in the world on a level playing field when every innovation that we have is somehow stolen or misappropriated? I think you saw the recent news article of the National Science Foundation warning university labs around the country about their um, biological and uh, genetic research, their medical research, uh, potentially being pilfered by Chinese interests that are looking at the NSF grants to get intellectual property that should be privileged information. I think, Howard, the other reason that Americans should be concerned is that we have identified a number of arenas that are vital to our democratic society in terms of media freedom and intellectual freedom, just to name two, where we assume that a democratic society is going to be an open society and a society in which there's freedom from fear, freedom from intimidation, the ability of all individuals to say and articulate what they believe or the questions that they might have. We have ample evidence that we have accumulated and others have discussed about China buying up the Chinese language media in the United States, radio stations, television stations. To get their message out. Not only to get their message out, yes, that is a very important objective of what they're trying to do, but to suppress messages they don't like. 
criticism of the Chinese Communist Party line, criticism of their claims in the South China Sea, criticism of their international power projection. And then we have the question of, is there an open intellectual climate for Chinese students on American university campuses when they know that what they say and what they write on social media and so on may be monitored and uh, it may get back to their parents, the authorities in China, their family could be threatened in China. Chinese students and scholar associations, which are present on most of the major university campuses in the United States, are getting direction from the Chinese consulates and the Chinese embassy in Washington frequently on protests they should make information they should pass back. This is not any longer an arm's length relationship and not any longer a climate of full freedom for our foreign students that there should be on on a democratic country's campuses. So Americans know something about China, but not very much about China. And you like to warn people that in order to understand China, you would need to understand the differences between these two nations, the United States and China. So what are the fundamental differences between these two nations, and why do they matter as a part of this discussion? Well, Howard, before I answer your question, I want to say a couple things okay. that I think are extremely important as caveats and acknowledgments. The first um, is to underscore what the two editors of this report, the great China scholar and journalist Orville Schell and myself, wrote in an afterword to this report, which is, we are urging constructive vigilance. We're urging that we now take a fresh look at these relationships and at China's efforts to engage and sometimes penetrate or compromise our institutions in a very balanced way, and a very empirical way, and not a hysterical way. And we are very concerned that the report not be misused and the legitimate concerns not be inflated to generate a generalized hysteria or suspicion of overseas Chinese in the United States or of Chinese Americans. We don't need to go through another McCarthy period. We need a very discriminating careful, sober, empirical look at this. Those are important caveats. Okay. And the second caveat, which I'm reading now, one of the contributors to our report is the great Washington Post longtime foreign correspondent in China, John Pomfret. And he has a wonderful book about Chinese-American relations from 1776 to the present called The Middle Kingdom and the Beautiful Country, China and the United States. And so before I identify what the differences are between China and the United States, I want to understand that there's been a rich, complex, and mutually beneficial, though not without many tensions along the way, history of relations between China and the United States. And so the argument coming from China that we're cold warriors, we're trying to promote some sort of conflict between China and the United States, I think needs to be quickly dismissed. Okay. What should be most appreciated about the difference between the People's Republic of China and the United States, not 
Chinese and Americans, right. but about the two political systems, is that we are a democracy, and they are not only an authoritarian system, okay? They have been for many decades. They are an authoritarian system that we hoped through political engagement, through international cooperation, through drawing them into the World Trade Organization and into the broader structure of international governance, and that we hoped through several decades of economic development would move at least in a more open, a more politically pluralistic direction. They are a political system that has been moving in recent years in an even more authoritarian direction than they were before. And when you look at the Orwellian surveillance state that China has constructed, when you look at the brutal suppression of the human rights movement in China, when you look at the massive virtual cultural genocide that is going on in minority regions like Tibet and Xinjiang, what you see is really one of the most repressive states in the world and the most sophisticated repressive state in the world that's developing some Orwellian totalitarian features of information management and personal control. And that is an enormous difference between the two countries right now. You have said that the Chinese Communist Party views the American ideals of freedom of speech, press, assembly, religion, and association as not only oddly American, but a challenge to the defense of China's own form of one-party rule. So help me understand that. What, why is that so? And, and why do these American ideals concern the Chinese Communist Party so greatly? Well, I think you should ask Xi, Xi Jinping that. But since uh, the president of China and the general secretary of the Communist Party is not here to answer that question, I'll do the best I can for you, Howard. One of the paradoxes of China today is that it seems to be booming. It's definitely rising to superpower status. And I would say, separate and apart from all our concerns, look, it's, it's the second biggest economy in the world. In the next decade, it's going to be the biggest economy in the world. It's one of the two biggest in population countries in the world. It has every right to become a superpower, right? I mean, we've got to acknowledge out of fairness that there's going to need to be an accommodation to China's rise under any circumstance. But the problem is that at the same time, this is a very insecure leadership. We see this in China. We also see it in different ways in Russia. They are not internally politically self-confident. If they were, they wouldn't need to have the extent of Orwellian individual surveillance and comprehensive information management and massive relentless repression of anybody raising human rights concerns or trying to press them in a courtroom. And I think they fear really what some of us had hoped, that as economic development proceeds, as China becomes a middle-class country, as more and more people come to study in the United States and Europe and Australia and so on, and as they become exposed to more ideas and information in the world, that it's human nature that people in those circumstances would want more control over their own lives, more say over the political future, more ability to determine the policies of their country. And this is what the Chinese Communist Party leadership is not willing to concede to. This is their fear. 
This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Hoover Institution and Freeman Spogli Institute Senior Fellow Larry Diamond next on Sirius XM Insight 121. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Hoover Institution and Freeman Spogli Institute Senior Fellow Larry Diamond. So you mentioned earlier that the Chinese government is in the business of misappropriation of technology and other intellectual property. Is U.S. President Donald Trump getting it right with regards to the trade war that he's engaged in with China? Because many people believe that the reason for the trade war is not only because of an imbalance of trade, but because he wants to negotiate away what they're doing. President Trump has pursued far too general and indiscriminate an approach to confronting China on trade. Most economists will tell you that a trade imbalance in itself is not what we should worry about. I think we should worry about unfair trading practices and definitely the massive theft and violation of our intellectual property rights and the compromise of our commercial and military leadership that that is leading to. But I think this could have been pursued through a more discriminating approach, more focused approach than the rather diffuse one that Trump has pursued. At the same time, I will tell you, Howard, that when I traveled in Asia this past August, uh, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Thailand, and India, I was struck and even taken aback, just out of real surprise as a political scientist, by the number of people in these Asian countries, diverse Asian countries, or in Hong Kong, of course, it's a part of China, but a somewhat distinct society, who many of them were obviously left of center, socially very pr progressive, who expressed to me considerable gratitude to Donald Trump for standing up to China. And so there is a lot of concern in Asia about China's pursuit of a kind of, not just leadership in Asia, but a kind of domination. Is it your belief, based on the research you did on this study, that China wants to be the single superpower in the world? Is their goal essentially global hegemony? Is that what we're talking about here? That they, it's more than just pushing the U.S. out of Asia. Forget the South China Sea. We're talking about the world. Well, that's the single most interesting question. And I think it is one I have to be fair in acknowledging that the China specialists and foreign policy specialists in our working group would, I think, offer very different answers to. I think there's a general consensus that, the, that China would like to play the leading role in Asia and gradually push the United States out of Asia. China would like to reunify Taiwan with the rest of the People's Republic of China obviously would prefer not to use force if it doesn't have to. But if it pushes the U.S. out of Asia militarily, it's it makes less it easier likely for them to, need do that, yeah. to use force. It wants to lay dominant claim to all the natural resources and geopolitical influence that would come with controlling the South China Sea. And if you look at what it's doing with its economic investments, its port building uh, and its Belt and Road Initiative in Asia, yes, it's certainly seeking, if I can use the word, hegemony in Asia. I think if you look globally at what it's doing to project influence, to compromise and penetrate democratic institutions, not only in Asia, most of all in Taiwan, but in advanced industrial democracies of North America, Australia, 
Europe and so on, and also in Latin America and Central and Eastern Europe, I think it is seeking global leadership. What, yes, what can I we learn? You mentioned Australia. What can we learn from what's happened with China and Australia? The Australians have, under the last two prime ministers, woken up to the fact that China was pursuing a very aggressive subterranean strategy of buying influence, buying access, and trying to compromise Australian foreign policy in a way that would lull the country into a kind of acquiescent apathy. And I think what we can learn is the watchword of our report, constructive vigilance. Don't overreact. Be very empirical, very analytical, very methodical. And then look at your institutions and rules and just ask in a very concrete way, what might you need to change? So what concerns you about the relationship that China has with universities? And as a part of that answer, what are these Confucius Institutes that we read about? Why do they concern you? The Confucius Institutes are arrangements and uh, teaching programs on a number of university campuses wherein the Chinese government, it's very important to say the government of China through the education ministry and a part of it called the Hanban, provide Chinese university lecturers, Chinese language instruction material, and financial support to American universities, and the American universities then receive them, provide them teaching privileges, and basically uh, accept them as Chinese language instructors. So universities are outsourcing their Chinese language instruction to a division of the Chinese Communist Party and government. And the pedagogical backstory of that in terms of the teaching materials and so on. Now, here's the reason to be concerned, and here's the reason not to be concerned. Okay. The reason not to be concerned is that I'm told by my Chinese language colleagues uh, who have facility in the language and have reviewed the formal curricular material that there's nothing particularly objectionable in it. The formal material is not saying, hey, while you're learning the basics of Chinese language, please appreciate you know, what a great system communist China is. It's, it's more subtle and straightforward than that. But it is a question of what might be introduced into the classroom in an informal way and what might be vetoed from discussion in an informal way and what other parallel arrangements China requires from universities in terms of not bringing speakers about or from Tibet, for example, in order to have the privilege of this financial assistance and curricular uh, assistance. So if the Confucius Institute is invited onto a campus, maybe the quid pro quo is that you don't invite the Dalai Lama to speak on that same campus. To put it in crude and blunt terms, something like that, yes. I'm good with crude and blunt, yes. here's the thing that most worries us, Howard. All of these contracts between the Hanban in the Education Ministry of China and individual American or European or Latin American universities are secret. Well, this is not consistent with the uh, culture of a university that it should be signing a secret contract with a uh, foreign authoritarian government. Our concern about the Confucius Institutes is it's got to be fully transparent and fully reviewable by normal faculty governance procedures. 
So what concerns you on university campuses as it relates to China? The first and most important one is the misappropriation of our intellectual property that's being generated both in scientific, commercial, potentially militarily relevant in all sorts of forms. Our university labs and our high technology innovation centers are leaking like sieves. And they're leaking because people that are working in them are sharing those, that information with the Chinese government? Or is, is it our students or our postdocs or our researchers? Who is it? Well, I'm not saying it's ours at Stanford. I don't know. But yes, it needs to be evaluated. Many of the graduate students that are coming here uh, and States. postdoctoral scholars in the United States are just taking this information and as some of them are, it's been documented, stealing it from uh, industrial and university settings. Others are just absorbing the knowledge and then bringing it back. And let me say, some of these postdoctoral scholars who are coming to the United States and Australia and parts of Europe to work on high technology areas like, as I said, drone technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, are coming from universities affiliated with the People's Liberation Army. It's even discoverable through open source research. And I know this because Australia has a think tank that's recently <laughs> produced a report using open source materials to document this. Can we at least start by ensuring that scientists and engineers working for the People's Liberation Army of China are not going to be, you know, in labs with our most sensitive technological secrets at stake. This is a big issue in America today because many, many universities across this country recruit full-paying Chinese students, and it helps to balance the budget of the universities. Well, now, l let me mention, thank you, Howard. One is what you said, that there are increasingly uh, public universities in particular. For the most part, yes. Like Michigan State, for example, University of Michigan, and a lot of, um, of the big state university systems that have become heavily dependent. You know, the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana has well over a thousand, it might be two or three thousand, Chinese students. And these students are 10 or 20 percent of the student body of the University of Illinois. They're not like Stanford students where they're mixing with American students, they're living in the dorms, they're functioning in English. You know, as undergraduates, they're really kind of getting integrated into American culture. And so at least they have the opportunity to think and question. So there was a recent story in the Chronicle of Higher Education late last year, that in some of these university towns like Champaign-Urbana, these massive Chinese student populations are accounting for 100, 200 million, 300 million dollars of revenue annually for the towns. So there's a lot at stake for the communities as well as the university. And when you become that financially dependent, on not just foreign students, but one block of foreign students from the most powerful and least democratic foreign country, it's pretty hard to resist when the country of origin says, don't do this, don't welcome this person, et cetera, et cetera. This is the United States of America, not just Stanford University 
we must remain a democratic society, not only for ourselves, but for all foreign students that we welcome onto this soil. And if their intellectual freedom and their freedom of political uh, and academic inquiry is being intimidated or impinged upon, we have to take a strong stand against that. And there can be no more important statement than you just made to end this conversation. Thank you, Larry, so very Thank much. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM Insight 121. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.